Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth. Welcome to the show. So glad everybody's back for another go around here with me and a guest and some pop star chatter. As always, I shall make my episodic plea to please rate, subscribe, and review Pop Pantheon on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This is one of the best ways to get the podcast in front of more people. Also, you know what? If you have the time or the impetus to do so, please share the show on social media. Spread the word. I'd really appreciate any help getting this out there in front of people that might like to hear episodes about pop stars and all of the stuff that we enjoy getting into on this podcast. So thank you to everyone that's been doing that. Also, social media, DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on both Twitter and Instagram, Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram. Follow us there and follow the Pop Pantheon Pod Instagram because we now have this amazing graphic illustrated by the incredible Juan Pilar who does all the beautiful graphics for all the episodes of the show. It is a diagram of all the Pop Pantheon tiers and where every artist we've talked about in the past 25 or so episodes has been ranked in the Pop pantheon so if you need a refresher if you forget where certain pop stars have ended up we now have this graphic it's on the pop pantheon pod instagram so yet another good reason to go follow that over there please join the discord chat tonight thursday february 3rd at 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific the links will be in the show notes of the episode as well as on all the social media channels i just listed yeah yet another reason to go follow it And if you have questions about past episodes, about this episode, things you want me to talk about, I suggest you send them to me at poppantheonpod at gmail.com. I'm going to start to produce minisodes more often, so I would love to have a couple mailbag episodes in the mix with those. So send your questions and I'll talk about them on air, possibly by myself, possibly with guests. We'll see. We'll see how it all goes. So with all of that said, let's get into this week's episode, which was a passion project of mine. I really wanted to do this episode. It's really important to me that we highlight pop stars that maybe have been forgotten about for some reason or just could use a bit of a cultural reassessment, honestly. And I feel like this subject fits that really well. So let's get into it. This is Pop Pantheon, Nelly Furtado. Nelly Furtado's career has walked a tightrope, sometimes with aplomb and sometimes a little less delicately, between two interlocking pop spheres. Through one lens, Nelly can be seen as an early adopter of a nebulous space in the pop ecosystem that we're now all very familiar with thanks to folks like Charlie XCX, Robin, and Lana Del Rey. This is a lane for artists with one foot in the chart-scaling world of mainstream pop and one in a more alternative, boundary-pushing, and idiosyncratic, quote-unquote, alternative zone, vacillating sometimes at their whim and sometimes, it would seem, against their will between broad success and a rejection of or from the main pop girlies conversation. Born in Victoria, 
Victoria, British Columbia to Portuguese parents, Nelly Furtado grew up helping her mother clean houses and dreaming of a bigger life. Like so many would-be pop stars, she got her start singing in church at a young age before becoming a multi-instrumentalist savant at age 9 and beginning to write her own songs at age 12. As a teenager, Nelly visited Toronto and soon became ensconced in the alternative hip-hop scene there, making her first foray into a recording career as a backing vocalist for underground rap group Planes of Fascination, and later forming a short-lived trip-hop duo, Nellstar, with one of its members. Following Nellstar's disillusion, Nelly, with her instantly recognizable nasally mezzo-soprano voice, performed at a talent show in Toronto, where she was discovered by members of the successful Canadian alternative R&B band Philosopher Kings, Gerald Eaton and Brian West, who also produced under the name Track and Field and immediately recognized her offbeat star quality. Eaton and West helped produce a demo that eventually led Nelly to a solo record deal with DreamWorks Records. And in late 2000, Nelly released her debut album, Woe Nelly. Produced by Track and Field, the record became an instant critical darling and featured a distinctive, quirky aesthetic which fused singer-songwriter material, folk markers, electronic and hip-hop production, and incorporated elements of world music. The album played a bit like a personality-forward counter-programming to the more manufactured, streamlined teen pop boom of the era, went on to sell six million records worldwide, won a Grammy, and featured two international hits. Turn Off the Light and her signature song, the top 10 feel-good neo-soul meets bubblegum pop anthem, I'm Like a Bird. Following Woe Nelly's somewhat surprising mainstream breakthrough, Nelly planted a seed that would later bear quite a bit of fruit down the road when she appeared on a remix of rapper Missy Elliott's 2001 smash, Get Your Freak On. Produced by innovative hip-hop maestro Timberland, this one-off provided the basis for a collaboration that would eventually lead to Nelly's most successful music. But before that came to pass, Nelly released her sophomore album, Folklore, in 2003. Again produced by Track and Field, the record took the homemade, left-of-center, multi-genre approach of Woe Nelly widescreen, but to much less effective results. The record's more heavy-handed, self-conscious approach to making eccentric world beat pop was divisive with critics and pretty much dismissed by the public, debuting at number 38 on the Billboard 200 and featuring no charting hits in the United States. Nelly, it seemed, was heading, like a plethora of aspirant pop stars before her, to languish for eternity in one-hit Wonderville. Folklore did, however, produce the 2004 European Football Championship official anthem, Forza. After Folklore flopped, Nelly, both by choice and necessity, had to reboot. After experimenting in the studio again with track and field and with new producers like Nelly Hooper and Pharrell, Nelly, at the suggestion of then-label boss Jimmy Iovine, hit up Timberland to see if he'd be interested in collaborating with her on her third album. The two, along with Timberland's then-protege Danger, instantly had chemistry, leading Nelly to scrap everything she'd done to that point and temporarily relocate to Miami and record what would become 
2006's Loose, a dance record which incorporated contemporary hip-hop references, electro-pop, as well as overt 80s motifs. Loose featured Timberland and Danger entirely revamping Nelly's sound and image, smoothing out the edges and quirks of her previous work, and using her singular coup to create pop records that were sexier, sleeker, and more broadly appealing than anything she'd made before. Immediately upon release, the record was pegged by a then-male-dominated and raucous-oriented music press as the ultimate sellout move, a formerly credible artist doing whatever it took to sex it up and have hits. But those sexist critiques were not shared by pop radio. Quite the contrary, in fact, Loose was a smash, debuting at number one, selling 12 million records worldwide, and producing massive hits like Maneater, Say It Right, and the Timberland duet Promiscuous, which peaked at number one on the Hot 100 and turned Nelly into an unlikely centrist dance pop diva. Despite her crossover success, Nelly always seemed like an odd fit with the other huge superstars of the moment like Britney, Gwen, and Fergie. Even after having the hit record most pop stars dream of, there was always a question of whether making this kind of turbocharged pop was a new modus operandi for Nelly, or if the twee girl who'd made her name comparing herself to a bird would treat Luce more as a dalliance before returning to unconventional sounds. Aside from a Spanish-language album in 2008, Mi Plan, Nelly boldly chose to not produce a follow-up to Luce for six years. In 2012, she released The Spirit Indestructible, this time with futurist R&B producer Darkchild at the helm. By that point, pop music had undergone some pretty major shifts sonically and had entered the social media era, fronted now by an entire new generation of women like Lady Gaga, Rihanna, and Katy Perry. Again dabbling in mainstream pop sounds, The Spirit Indestructible got decent reviews, but was largely overlooked by this new generation of pop fans, debuting at number 79 in America and producing no charting singles. After another long hiatus, Nelly's latest record, 2017's The Ride, produced by indie pop auteur and St. Vincent collaborator John Congleton, had her pivoting back towards the weirder, left-of-center pop instincts of her early work. While not a commercial success, The Ride set up what could be an intriguing third decade of music from one of pop's most enigmatic shapeshifters. Nelly Furtado has sold over 40 million records worldwide. She's had one number one album, five top 10 singles, and three number one hits in the US. She's been nominated for seven Grammy Awards, winning one, and has also won one Latin Grammy Award, 10 Juno Awards, one Brit Award, one Billboard Music Award, and one MTV Europe Music Award. Here on Pop Pantheon with me to get loose about Nelly Furtado is entertainment journalist Bianca Gracie. All right, so I am here with entertainment journalist Bianca Gracie. Bianca, welcome to Pop Pantheon. Thank you so much. I love all things pop, so this is just 
a dream for me. I, I could go on and on and on about <laughs> my love for the genre. <laughs> me too. You've come to the right place, let me tell you. Yes. You're in good company here. <laughs> Actually, this entire conversation germinated from a tweet that you posted like during the summer where you said something along the lines of like, Nelly Furtado doesn't get enough credit for loose because that really changed like <laughs> the uh, aesthetics of pop music in its time or something along those lines. And I am constantly <laughs> ringing that bell. So when I saw that tweet, yeah. I was like, yes. Okay. And I wrote to you and I was like, well, you come on my podcast to talk about Nelly Furtado. <laughs> like, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I always love those moments where people have organic conversations on Twitter and it just sparks like this entire, it's like a snowball effect. Like you never know where it could lead and it led us to this moment. So here we are. I'm glad we could dig it, dig more into it. Me too. And like, she has a really interesting career trajectory where she went from sort of being this like treading the line between like indie singer songwriter and pops star like in the early part of her career and then fully went over into she like, like catapulted yeah into yeah. more like mainstream down the middle pop like in the middle of her career and then she's also had this really interesting post loose career that has been sort of under the radar and like I wasn't paying very much attention to because I, <laughs> I don't think many people were I was gonna say I <laughs> it was for a very specific audience that I was not a part of but I respect it so <laughs> I mean, and I think, you know, this is going to be fun because in like the post Robin body talk era of pop, we're more uh -huh. used to like these pop artists that tread the line between indie and pop. So maybe they're not necessarily your centrist Dua Lipa, Katy Perry, you know, right down the middle radio chart toppers, but they're somewhere between like an indie artist and a pop star. And mm -hmm. I feel like that's a lane that we're super familiar with now in the streaming ecosystem of pop music. But I feel I feel like Nelly Furtado, weirdly, when I was like going back and revisiting like her early work, was maybe an early adapter of that space where in her early albums, she's clearly making pop music, but it's very left of Britney or Christina at that time. You know what I mean? Yeah, she was a complete outlier. Like I remember when, you know, Will Nelly and like I'm Like a Bird first came out. It was music that I never heard of. I mean, granted, I, I'm a 90s baby, but I was what, like eight, nine years old. Mm when you know this whole era came out but the 90s were such a weird but incredible time for music because it was kind of a free-for-all you know you had the mega boy bands with NSYNC and Backstreet Boys but you also had the Britney and Christina's but then like new metal was also super popular like Limp Bizkit and Korn But you had like these like weird like people who kind of escape through the cracks like a Lou Bega. <laughs> a little bit of Monica in my life, a little bit of Erica by my side, a little bit of Rita. Or like a Smash Mouth. Right. Or it, so it was a time for like literally every genre was successful, and mm. I think that was the beauty of the '90s, and I think that's why Nelly was able to solidify her place back then because. Even though it could have been strange to the mainstream ear, it was still accepted because at that time, like I said, it was a free-for-all. So anyone could do whatever music they like and 
most likely was going to stick on the charts. I think that's such a great point. Like, it was a very sort of, like, open time for radio. Like, everything you mentioned was there coexisting. I feel like right now, and a lot, like, in more recent times, like, radio gets very set in a specific sound, like, whatever the the, the moment is. It's like pop contemporary or rap. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, like... It's more rigid. Exactly. Well, maybe because there also was more radio happening at this time, there maybe was more space, like, weirdly, at least in a radio context for like more music to come through so let's rewind a little bit to just prior to the emergence of Nelly and her debut album Whoa Nelly and just sort of talk a little bit about the broader state of pop at that moment I'm interested as I was sort of getting at earlier in talking about other artists maybe in the mid to late 90s dabbling in chart success but weren't who we sort of like think of as like you know the traditional titanic pop stars of that era who weren't Mariah who weren't Britney who weren't the obvious centrist pop stars that we think of in the 90s but were still having chart success and coding as pop but also were sort of seen as credible or indie like who was who else was treading that line just prior to Nelly the people that come to mind and they're all women actually Mm. I feel like the women artists in the 90s it was like no holds barred for them just in terms of their emotional lyricism and like playing the guitar and all that and I think people that come to mind are like Alanis Morissette Mm, good one Natalie Imbruglia with Torn Dido, even like Lauren Hill with the miseducation of Lauren Hill, even though, you know, she came from the Fugees and had success, you know, in the rap field, I think she was seen more of as like a critically acclaimed artist rather than like the mainstream pop star. Even with someone like in Aaliyah, she had her biggest mainstream moment in 2001 with her self-titled album but prior to that her first two records there were top 20 albums but she was like on the brink of pop stardom but she wasn't there just yet but she was still seen as a person to look out for so i feel like those type of women are the ones who come to mind who had that like critical acclaim, but also had great success either on radio or on the charts. Fascinating. I mean, you're talking about a lot of different styles, I guess. You have Alanis, who's like more kind of rock-centric. Yeah. You have Natalie Imbruglia, who's kind of like singer songwriter pop. You've got Lauren Hill, who's obviously more of like a hip-hop and R&B artist, and Aaliyah, who's like, yeah, yeah. you know. If you had to say, like, is there something that they all share in common that allows them to operate both as like sort of mainstream pop successes and also be seen as credible in the eyes of like, you know, the, you know, more high minded music fans. Yeah, you know, I think it comes down to the songwriting, mm. which, you know, Nelly Furtado is a songwriter first. And when you think about, I mean, granted, I am a Mariah Stan, I'm part of the Lamley. <laughs> of course, she's an incredible yes. songwriter. But, you know, in that time, there was the Britneys and the Christinas and the Mandy Moores, and they had those songs written for them specifically to capture minds like myself who were teens or preteens who wanted that bubblegum four on the floor type of sound but these women you know the Nelly Furtado or Shania even it's like Shania Twain or Dido they were songwriters first and I feel like that raw emotion is what set them apart but also connected them despite all of them having different types of sounds. That's such a good point and it is a a bit of a sticky territory too because it kind of gets into that sort of rockist 
perception of what credibility is like that you can't be credible unless you are seen as a songwriter but at the same time what all these women were doing was more personal and more intricate in terms of their songwriting they're more personality forward in a sense like Mm. they were quirky they were singular they weren't put through a flattening machine I think a lot of mainstream pop in that particular era was very center very prom queen prom king white Mm extremely sort of like for lack of a better word because this is also complicated but manufactured feeling to people and I feel like they didn't have their edges sanded down like these were artists that like allowed their personalities to shine through in their music and their music was quirky and filled with their unique personalities in that way I also just when I was thinking about this too I just for some reason I have to bring up Khalees she was making very eccentric pop music that was seen as cool. You keep telling me lies, but to your surprise, look, I found her red coat and your bitch caught out there. And we loved to sort of peg certain female, like more eccentric female pop stars in this era as quirky. Khalees had that vibe, and I feel like that's a good entree Mm -hmm. into Nelly Furtado because Nelly Furtado's early music is quite quirk forward. And I think it's very interesting because Mm -hmm. it really sets up the narrative that will follow when she does pivot to the mainstream, which is like, why is this quirky, cool artist doing something more sanded down? So let's talk a little bit about like who Nelly is, where she comes from, kind of just a little broad strokes about like her backstory yeah so she was born and raised in victoria or you know british columbia and her parents are actually immigrants from portugal so she grew up really integrated in portuguese culture rather than you know specifically north american her culture is i could tell just by you know listening to her music it's so important to not only her music, but just her identity. But I think her big light bulb moment is when she visited Toronto with her sister um, in the mid nineties. And she met with a a hip hop group. They were called the Planes of Fascination. (laughs) That's a different name, (laughs) but you know. So she first got into music by doing backing vocals for a hip hop like a rap group. Sisters from late brothers, if we don't stick together, regardless of the time, regardless of whatever, streets will run with blood if we don't come together. I said the issues with this. She formed her own hip hop group, but it was more trip hop, which I think is interesting because you hear some of that sounds in Will Nelly. But if you so So that was her, you know, her first foray into the music industry. And, you know, she dissipated the duo and then she performed solo at a talent show in Toronto. And there were two music executives, Gerald Eaton and Brian West. Mm. So they saw her talent. They're like, oh, she could probably be a star at one point. The demo that she made with them led to her record deal with DreamWorks in 1999. And prior to O'Nelly, she dropped a single in 1999, Party's Just Begun Again, on the Broke Down Palace soundtrack. It has 
that trip hop sound, but it's very pop leaning. It's, to me, it's not as folky as what we get into on, on Will Nelly. She has a really unique sounding voice and she uses it in a lot of different ways that have become familiar to us. Do we hear that on that song? Yeah, I, I think from the beginning, even with this song before she became, you know, quote unquote mainstream, that sound, her like very super quirky voice, it was prominent on that on that first single. So she gets this record deal, she puts out this song and she starts collaborating with those guys, Gerald Eaton and Brian West on her yeah. debut record. So how would you describe the sound of Nelly if you had to? Yeah, it's folk pop. Mm. It's folk pop, but not in the like, oh, let me strum a guitar and like sing like really softly. No, like the whoa, like she's like whoa, <laughs> literally on this on this album. Like, I think it's it's honestly her voice. Like, her voice is nothing that I've ever heard before. And the music, it's, it's like a mix of, you know, folk, obviously. But there's rock, there's trip-hop, there's pop, there's a little bit of R&B, there's Latin inspiration. And it's so adventurous, mm. I feel like. Like, it, it to me, and for I'm sure a lot of people who first heard the record, you know, when it dropped, it was such a good introduction into who she was or who she is still as an artist like I said her voice is just so special and what I like about this record in particular that her vocals they're not clean cut at all like they're a little bit jagged and they're not polished to perfection and she just she lets all of those little quirks shine through on all the songs on the on the album. Yeah, the voice is very distinctive. And I mean, we talk a lot on this podcast yeah. about how having a distinctive voice is kind of one of like the subtle keys to being a successful pop star. Like the minute you open mm. your mouth, people know it's you singing. And like most of the yeah. big pop stars have that. And Nelly definitely has that. I mean, I think some people find her vocals irritating because they're sort of nasally, they're super mezzo-soprano mm -hmm. high. They're super high. Yeah. It's, like, it's like a jolt to the brain. You're like, oh, she, she's here. She's yeah. like a bird. Yeah. <laughs> so, Woe Nelly is really a singular sounding record in a lot of ways like it's definitely got like a heavy hip-hop influence to it and i know that nelly had as you were mentioning this background working with these trip-hop groups yeah. interesting i think at the time especially looking back at it like through our contemporary lens to have like a white woman kind of out there sort of like rapping and mm. using hip-hop signifiers as a means of like seeming cooler in the context of like, pop cool. yeah. yeah but i feel like in listening to this record she has a fluidity with it that really works and doesn't sound forced and awkward when she does start to kind of rap in certain moments. So I prefer to run this road, wrap around the edge. It's good for something, but you could take it to you. You're running your course at your own pace, but I just got impatience. See, I wanted to explore. For sake of a suck, you were fake, just a patient. Yeah, it's this really interesting fusion of singer songwritery aesthetics like there's a lot of guitar there's obviously like these emotional songs over this clattering percussive driven production that 
obviously sets it apart from like the very completely sort of industrial electronic sounds of like the more mainstream pop that we were talking about in this time period. So Woe Nelly has maybe still her signature song as its lead single and it's called I'm Like a Bird. Let's talk about I'm Like a Bird for a second because I feel like I'm Like a Bird is the first time that Nelly's crystallizes in mainstream pop culture's mind. And maybe to this day, it's still like sort of foundational in like how we think about her. And I think it's interesting because I, after we talk about this, I do want to talk about how like maybe I'm Like a Bird misrepresents some of Woe Nelly in some ways. But like, what is the sound specifically of I'm Like a Bird? And like, why does that song go on to be like this quirky mainstream Pop it. I feel like that song, when I listen to it, it's so hopeful in a way. Mm. Because, you know, first of all, you don't really hear people referring to themselves as birds, you know? So, <laughs> like, I feel like I'm like a bird. That that title in itself, I feel like it was just so different. I, I was watching one of her old interviews and she was saying that, you know, her mom and her aunts, like, you know, they were either housekeepers or maids and she worked with her mom and that inspired I'm Like a Bird because, you know, back then she didn't have the record deal and she was trying to find a way to be free and to fly and spread her wings, you know. So I thought the way that she presented this song was kind of, it was metaphorical and for people to understand and have hope that, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel mm. and, you know, you'll be able to fly away, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and spread your and spread your wings, you know, when whenever, you know, things are getting getting too dismal. I was in Los Angeles recording my first album with Track and Field, who are Canadian, and um, I needed more songs. And I stayed at this apartment building called the Oakwood Suites, where there's a lot of young kind of kids that are starting out in entertainment stay it's kind of like a long-term apartment sort of with a kitchen and you know safe to say I was a little bit lonely um so I just woke up one morning and sat on the little pull-out sofa in the living room and wrote I'm like a bird and um I still love singing that song. I still love it. Yeah, I mean, you're so dead on about what it is. It's very, like, inspirational and kind of, like, as you yeah. said, like, a song about, like, finding hope in the darkness and also, like, finding yourself, I think, like, a yeah. little bit. And also Nelly's voice, I feel like, sort of has, like, a childlike quality in some instances mm. that, like, kind of adds to the, yeah. like mood of this song which is like I'm a young girl like finding my wings. Yeah it has a nostalgic feel to it. It's almost naive in a way. Yeah. It kind of brings you back to when you were a kid and you wanted to escape. And though my love is red It's a little like the rest is still unwritten. <laughs> Shout out to Natasha <laughs> um, You know, the other things that it kind of makes me think of a little bit is like Neo Soul. It's sort of like a poppier mm. Neo Soul song. Like someone that came to mind a little bit for me in some of this early Nelly Furtado material was India Re, weirdly enough, and just sort of Ooh, like... Ooh, that's a good... Right? Like, Yeah, I'm thinking of like, I'm not my hair. Yes. Like, or I'm not like your that. average yeah. girl from the video.
it's so true they're fusing these very like uplifting and happy and very bright production with heavy subjects but they're they're presenting it in a way that's so relatable and for people to really digest it like i said it's all about the songwriting they're just super poetic with the way that they they write their music yeah and there's a personal quality to it and a quirk that like you can see why people might have gravitated towards this in the contrast to something like Hit Me Baby One More Time, you know, which was like the year before, mm-hmm. whatever it is, which are these kind of like very sort of like hyper-confident sex-forward songs. And then you have exactly. sort of like this woman singing a very hooky, catchy song that's like, I'm like a bird, you know, I'm it, it's innocent, yeah. it's it's pure, it's, mm-hmm. it's inspiring. The reason that I think this song maybe is like a bit of a red herring on the rest of the album is because I feel like it's one of the more straightforward sort of singing or songwritery songs on the record that like uh, a lot of other songs like shit on the radio i love shit on the radio yeah exactly that's like one of my favorites from her whole discography you like me to you hold my shit on the radio well i hate to say but pop ain't going solo you like me to you hold my shit on the radio but now i'm just announcing for you oh no you like me to you see me on your tv well if you're so low below then why you watching you say good things come to those away I've been waiting a long time for it I remember the days when I was And that song really represents I think more of like the fusion style of the album where it's like lots of disparate genres coming together it's like the singer songwriter thing paired with like a lot of different like electronic and hip hop influences yeah and I feel like that's what defines this record and I'm like a bird to me does have like a little bit of like a hip hop beat in the verses especially but like yeah. sounds more just kind of like down the middle sort of like singer songwriter like, of the you could 90s. tell that they were making it to be the first single. absolutely it has that radio friendly quality to it and I think the rest of the album kind of takes that and sort of like pairs Alanis-ish pop with more like hip-hop and electronic production and bridges the gap between like sort of singer-songwriter folk and like hip-hop aesthetics and when I was thinking about Mm -hmm. that she has a very particular sound on this and I was kind of thinking like what are other table setting records for Woe Nelly things that came to my mind were Ray of Light and Music the latter of which came out the same year that was Madonna taking her more electronic aesthetics and dance music aesthetics and also adding like a sort of singer-songwriter-y yeah and more like spiritual Virtual yes. type of vibe. Exactly. And, yeah. Right. And then the other thing I weirdly thought about was Beck, who mm. like was really well known for like bridging rock and roll and even like a little bit of country with hip hop beats. There's a destination a little up the road from the habitations of the towns we know. A place we saw the lights turn low, the jigsaw jazz in the get fresh flow. He was so much more ironic and more cerebral and less like uplifting than Nelly Furtado was. Oh, but true. I feel like aesthetically yeah. there. There is like a little bit of a lineage there between both of those table setting sort of artists and albums. I like that. Yeah, there's a song called Baby Girl, which we should definitely talk about for a second because it contains a line that's something like, what about that ting, ting, ting? That little ching 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 thing becomes something that Timberland steals and creates as a song for his artist at the time, this rapper Miss Jade 
called Ching Ching. And it's the first Nelly Timberland connection that like presages their huge pop moments. <laughs> From ghetto to class, you this to finish the bag for holding your cat. I did not know this. Mm -hmm. That makes so much mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other big hit from this record is Turn Off the Light. How does Turn Off the Light contrast with I'm Like a Bird or present other aspects of like what makes Woe Nelly an interesting record? Yeah, I think vocally she sounds edgier and a little bit tougher. Like I'm Like a Bird is more, you know, floaty and pretty sounding but turn off the light is a little more heavy hitting especially in the chorus it's a good um example of her fusing so many different sounds in one song like the chorus of turn off the light is a mix of trip-hop but like a little bit of like rap and then maybe the reggae or the jazz influence with all that scatting But then the verses are more folk and pop It's this clash that shouldn't work on paper, but it just, the way that she blends it, it's very, very unique. I agree, and even a little bit of country, because isn't there a little like, hee-haw? It's really fascinating because I think so much of the conversation around Nelly is sort of like this pre-loose era and then like this sort of crossover thing. But in listening mm -hmm. back to this record, I don't know how you felt about it. I didn't feel like this was so radically far off from like the Nelly Furtado that we get on Loose. I mean, I get that there's like a lot of streamlining that goes on. I mean, this is a very enjoyable pop album. It is. As you said, it's very inventive and they try a lot of weird things that like shouldn't work together yeah. and they do as you pointed out. Yeah, but it's not super left field. No. Where it was very successful. It won a Grammy. Yeah. <laughs> so it was critically acclaimed and super popular on radio and you know, in mainstream and I think it was a good jumping off point for Luz. I mean, of course, it was her taking a different turn, but it wasn't that sharp right. of a turn. It just goes to show you like the way the discourse around this, which I want to get to when we get to Luz, was ridiculous. So Woe Nelly, out in 2000, has these couple of hits. Nelly's having a run of success. And a sort of pivotal moment that occurs in the sort of super narrative of Nelly's career is that Timberland and Missy ask her to get on a remix of their smash Get your freak on in 2001. Who's that bitch? Me, me, me. Nelly, 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 Ferdado, all in your stereo. I'm up the ladder, please don't tell me you don't like it, so you died at me the first time, so let me stamp it. Yo! Hit you with a new flow, people better lay low. Stick you up like Velcro, cause me and Nelly say so. I'm doing how we do some strings. So why is like the Nelly quirk pop star of the Woe Nelly era and Missy and Timberland's aesthetic coming together such a successful union? And how does it help us sort of set up what is going to come later during Nelly's crossover with Timberland? Why I think it works so well, mind you, I don't think anyone would have ever paired no. Nelly and Timberland. It was a very, I, I think but, I remember as somebody who was a casual Woe Nelly fan and a casual Missy fan being like, what the hell yeah. is this? Why, are, why is it's this It's like, this doesn't 
work right. like at yeah. all. But I think what made it so seamless is both Timbaland and Missy Elliott, they also have a ton of fusion in their music, mm-hmm. you know, with Get Your Freak On, like that song alone, there's someone speaking in Japanese at the beginning and the end of the song. Yeah. It's sampling a German track, but it also has some like Bangra, like Indian inspired production to it. And it's like, it's a clash, just like Turn Off the Light was a clash, but it just work it's weird but catchy enough where it could really capture the intention of the mainstream and i think that's what they both do very well so to me it made sense that they would eventually work together so woe nelly goes on to be a you know a pretty big hit it has one humongous single and a second pretty successful follow-up single Mm -hmm. so how would you say following let's say 2001 2002 the period between woe nelly and folklore What's Nelly's like position in pop culture, more broadly speaking? Like, who are her fans? Where does she fit in the context of the pop conversation? Like, how is she perceived, do you feel like, by in public imagination in that period? Yeah, I think, you know, when we were discussing earlier, just like the indie or credible stars of the 90s who still had mainstream appeal, I think she carried that through in the early 2000s. I would say like, if she came out when Pitchfork was more around, right. she would have been like a Pitchfork all-star. You so know? true. Great point. So Yeah, and it goes back to what we were saying earlier, where it's almost like the way that Charlie XCX is like a Pitchfork all-star. Or like Lana yeah. Del Rey or something like that. Like, yeah, right? I think, yeah, Lana is a, is a good... Not like musically of course but just the way that their music is perceived Mm. and respected in the industry that's kind of what nelly was building to when she first came out with this first record was i'm like a bird also kind of a little bit looked down upon in some way like or seen as like like silly or i i'm am i remembering that narrative correctly no, you're, I think you're right. Now that I'm thinking about it, like I said, she's comparing herself to a bird. Right. That it's like, a si- it's a little bit, <laughs> you know? it can be a yeah. little silly seeming. Yeah. And it goes along the lines of what you were saying earlier, just, you know, having that like childlike mindset right. on the track. Right. It was strange, but you know, retrospect, it, it, it worked. And like pop can very cannily make silliness into something transcendent and i feel like that song yeah, achieves exactly. that so nelly returns three years later as you said she wins a grammy this record is very successful very critically well received and has these hits she comes back three mm. years later with an album called folklore which to my ear is not like a facsimile of woe nelly but is like taking the same aesthetic approach and maybe taking it even further it's like super sort of like Oh, it goes over the right. edge. Yeah, well, tell opinion. me, what do you what what is the aesthetic of folklore? The other folklore, so it, it, the original folklore. Yeah, right. So, it's kind of like a musical throw thing in the sink right. and see if you know. Yes, yeah, so I would. I would agree with that assessment. Granted, Will Nelly is a musical mismatch, but with folklore, I felt like she went over the line a little too much. Mm-hmm. It's way too clanging and it's not seamless. With Will Nelly, she threw like ten different genres on the wall and it stuck and it worked with folklore it was like she was trying to capture that same magic and it was off it was very off nobody can control me nobody can confront me nobody can disown me nobody can ignore me As sort of like, look at me, I'm eccentric as Woe Nelly could come across. It feels natural Mm -hmm. and fluid and not forced. 
Like it feels chill. Exactly. Almost. Like folklore, on the other hand, I feel like she almost bought the hype about herself too much and became yeah. self-consciously sort of like, look at me. I'm multicultural. And like, I throw lots of, yeah, exactly. Like I, I'm this quirky yes. girl. Yeah. It was almost like she became a caricature of herself on mm-hmm. this record. The lead single was called Powerless Say What You Want, which I would say is one of the better songs on that record. And it's hard to find good songs on that album. <laughs> but the way I take, think power. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I'm just saying, like, even Powerless, like, it is, I think it's the best song on the yeah. album, but even that is weird. Like, that banjo, <laughs> it's like, where, 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 like, what? What is happening on this on this? I feel like Wonelli was very sort of, like, personal, and this record is very much, like, trying to make a political statement. Like, mm-hmm. the multicultural aspect of the music on Woe Nelly was just, like, a matter of fact. Like, it, like, spoke for itself. Whereas I feel like on this record, she felt like this need to scream it from the rooftop. super heavy on you know the quote-unquote world music right it reminds me especially like with songs like forza like it reminds me of like fifa world cup <laughs> i think it like, was a FIFA video world game cup soundtrack <laughs> know they were going in the studio like oh i'm going to make a song specifically to like be played at the soccer right games. like you said it's forced and it, it didn't come across as organic as her first album yeah i agree it's decidedly uncool feeling that was like one thing that i walked away yeah. from it you know with like there's something cool about Wo nelly like there's something alluring and sort of yeah it's like the girl that you want to you want to hang exactly out with, and this know, is like folklore it's like uh i'll i'll sit you know across the classroom from yeah you know you know like, you know what <laughs> <laughs> exactly that. You know what else this kind of highlights for me that I think is a thread we can pick up is that Nelly's personality and her like references are interesting and singular and quirky and strange. I don't think she's the most dynamic songwriter, like lyricist. So I think sometimes the limitations of like when she swings for something too esoteric or too big those limitations can show. And I think maybe that was oh, another sure. part of this, the problem with this record. So this album was not well received critically yeah. or commercially. And I feel like- No, not at all. It was a flop. I mean, in the way that we use that term. Mm-hmm. She had the a big sophomore slump. Huge. For sure. Huge. It's important that we highlight that because obviously like she had this big success with the debut record. And then she sort of like doubled down on that approach for the second record and failed must have caused some sort of soul searching moment for her. Oh, I think so. You know, when you look at interviews and stuff, when she's speaking on loose, she's saying that, you know, she wanted to challenge herself. But to me, 
that's code for, you know, the record label wasn't happy. And, <laughs> and she that's had good. to, you know. That's good reading between the lines. <laughs> you know, during that time, I mean, it makes sense because I was reading that, you know, she was signed to DreamWorks. Universal bought DreamWorks. So DreamWorks kind of folded and she was now signed to Interscope Geffen. So at Interscope Geffen, they've always had top tier artists. Like now for people who are listening, Olivia Rodrigo, like Billy Eilers are all signed to Interscope. So the record label is like historically known to have like top tier artists. So I think maybe that pressure was put on her to really have mainstream success in order for her record label to be happy. So would you say that you feel like the impulse to move in a more overtly simplistic mainstream direction? I don't mean that as a knock, just yeah, to be yeah. clear, because we're about to have a whole conversation that I want to make sure people understand that I don't feel that pivoting to more radio friendly music is a derogatory idea. No, so I just want I just I want to totally establish that. that. But I'm curious if you had to speculate, you feel like that was a sort of like survival technique on her part? Or do you feel like there was an artistic impulse there as well? I think it's a mix. Just from what I've seen with Nelly, she seems like a very honest person and genuine. So I think it's a mix of her wanting to experiment even more, but having that pressure to please, you know, like a Jimmy Iovine who was the mm. head of Interscope at that time and just to make sure that the label was pleased. So it's, it was a mix of a, both of those things. So piggybacking off of that, I think we should just zoom out for a little bit now and talk a little bit about mm -hmm. kind of the state of mainstream pop more broadly in the mid-2000s. And also, I want to talk a little bit about the idea of, quote unquote, selling out as we understood it in this era, because yeah. I think we have moved pretty far as a culture in the poptimism era we don't look down on pop music, generally speaking, or mainstream pop music to the degree that it was derided by certain corners of pop culture in this period. I just remember a lot of stories from this era, and I think we should touch on this. I have One that's really seared into my mind is Liz Fair, who like went mm -hmm. from being sort of like this indie darling rock singer songwriter to flat out saying and this was around the same time maybe 0304 like having a series of underperforming albums and then sort of saying i want to hear my song on the radio and like teaming yeah. up with like i don't know i think avril's people and whatever and like making a much more centrist sounding pop record which like sorry like has some bangers on it and also mm -hmm. was completely torn to shreds by the music press by a lot of her past fans for quote-unquote selling out so like are there other artists you can point to in this era who either failed at bridging the gap like liz fair did or who were successful at moving from what may have been perceived as a more credible musical aesthetic and into mainstream less credible pop stardom well the person i think when you were first discussing yeah. this what is a gwen stefani yeah. i am a huge no doubt fan and i adore gwen solo stuff but it was kind of like like the tires like screw yeah like it's like whoa what what it, where is this coming from you know she went from being a front woman of like this really dope like ska punk rock type of band and then going like balls to the walls pop music which was completely different and separate from the audience that she first had I feel like when 
she first dropped Love Angel Music Baby in 04, people, especially people from her original fan base, thought it was a, a joke. Like, <laughs> like it's like, what? Like, why, why are you doing pop? Like, real music fans will listen to pop music. Right. So I think she got a lot of flack back then. But people like you and I, like, we welcomed her with open oh. arms when she decided to, you know, to pivot. And... You know, she's an example of someone who really pulled it off very successfully. I mean, she yeah. had massive success with her especially that record but also with the follow-up solo album and i think this is i think setting up gwen stefani is extremely important both for the reasons that we're talking about in terms of this sort of like crossover sellout conversation and also aesthetically mm -hmm. for setting up loose what allowed gwen stefani to like make that transition success like why do you think she pulled it off so well you know at this time of music going back to the quirkiness like that uniqueness of course you know we all know gwen stefani has one of the most unique voices out and i adore her voice and i think her kookiness was accepted because at the time of you know, pop music, it was pretty eccentric and weird, but still mainstream leaning. So I think she found that lane to kind of bridge the gap with her like quirky, like, you know, Orange County style and make it more palatable for mainstream audience. Such a good point. And I really feel like now that you're talking about this, there was a feeling with Gwen and No Doubt that there was always like this vibe, like she could do more than this. Like you could yeah. see it in her fashion. So maybe yeah. part of the formula for making this work is like, there has to still be some sort of connection to like the person that people knew you as before. Like if it feels like a complete utter sort of like yeah you can't jump all the way off the leg you gotta hold back a little right bit, which is fun because we were talking about the fact that like a lot of these early nelly records like in retrospect it doesn't feel like it's a pivot but it doesn't feel like it's so radical and no not at all and i would venture to say that gwen maybe had a harder trick to pull off because i think no doubt was a much larger pop cultural fixation than nelly Furtado was in her early mm -hmm. career like no doubt was like legitimately a humongous band and Nelly Furtado was like you know I think prior to Loose was known as like a little bit of a maybe a one-hit wonder that's true no I don't think anyone thought there would be follow-ups to after Will Nelly like oh maybe she'll just have yeah this one hit and then you know yeah, she'd be the Nat she'd be she'd be Natalie coffee. and Bruglia yeah. part two or whatever exactly she'll be singing at coffee shops after. yeah <laughs> <laughs> And then, of course, like, we don't have time to just get into every facet of this, but I just think we shouldn't get into this conversation or leave this conversation about selling out without acknowledging sort of, like, the sexism inherent in sort of, like, oh, a woman who's choosing to express her sexuality more overtly or differently than she has before is inherently less credible or less worthy of artistic worth or praise. I feel like that's a huge narrative that gets heaped on women like Liz Fair, women like Gwen Stefani, women like Nelly, who make this sort of musical or aesthetic pivot. Obviously, Nelly got criticized a lot for, you know, being a slightly more sexually Although it's hard to even say that she really even did that looking at some of the promo for this album, but whatever. That was a narrative that got put on her quite a lot. And then, of course, the rock is sort of thing that if you're not sort of sitting at your guitar and presenting in this very specific way, if you're making music for dance floors, if you're making music for the radio, that that's somehow inherently less valuable. And that obviously goes on in all yeah. these conversations. So Nelly decides yeah. to work with Timberland. Do you, under, do you have, like, insights into the process of, like, what they were aiming for in creating loose like what was the goal like and what are the aesthetics that they came up with to make that record with nelly specifically the reason why she named it loose is because she felt free like she had more curves you know after giving birth to her daughter and she felt more in tune with her sexuality and more confident and she wanted that 
self-expression to be reflected in the music. So to my understanding, it was not only a sonic rebirth, but it was rebirth for her as a new mom, as a woman. And she wanted to really capture this like newfound, like badass womanhood on the record. You know, and we also talked earlier about why she and Timberland were kind of a well put together duo, even though it might not have made sense on paper. They both have this sort of voracious multicultural appetite for sounds and throwing them all into a sort of pop music skin. So they made sense together in that way. But also it makes sense that this record, I feel like, is very oriented towards the dance floor in ways that Nelly's old music never really was. This is music that, you know, Timberland's always been oriented towards dance music on some level, but this is also a time in music, generally speaking, where popular music is moving in a dancier direction. And I feel like this album fits into that sort of genre turn. Gwen Stefani with Love Angel Music right. Baby, Beyonce's B-Day, mm. Super Dance And then, you know, Madonna's Confessions on the Dance Floor. There were so many dance-heavy tracks that were dominating the charts and radio, so it made sense to me that this was a dance-leaning record. So the first record we hear off of Loose is a song called No I Igual, which was like kind of like a buzz single, I think, from the record. First of all, it's in Spanish entirely, so that really fits Nelly's, yeah. like, you know, I can globetrot in my music aesthetic. And then we get the real lead single, at least in America. I think the lead single in mm. the UK and Europe was actually Maneater, but let's start talking about Promiscuous. All right. shares quite a bit in common I feel like with Hollaback Girl which is like part of why I wanted to talk about Gwen a little bit because it has that mm. same kind of marching band stomping beat to it that Hollaback Girl does How would you describe Promiscuous Girl otherwise? Promiscuous, I feel like it's just so flirty. That's Very what I think flirty. about. Whenever I think about it, you it's like you want to go to the club and, you know, go with your girlfriends, like have a Cosmo or two and just, you know, it, it has like this like carnal mystery to mm. it, especially with the call and response lyrics, you know, between Timbaland and Nelly. Roses are red, some diamonds are blue. Chivalry is dead, but you're still kind of cute. Hey, I can't keep my mind off you. Do you mind if I come through? I'm out of this world, come with me to my planet Get you on my level, do you think that you could handle it? They call me Thomas, last name Crown Recognize gang, I'm a lay by down And because like they're not really singing They're like flirtatiously talking on the track And I think that's what leads to its very seductive nature Agreed, and also rapping a little bit again Like a little bit of yeah, like yeah. a rap call and response vibe to the lyrics mm -hmm, For sure You know, it's really interesting though because 
we were talking about kind of like the rap this record has about like sexualizing her. I mean, a big aspect around that was like, you know, she's showing her midriff and whatever the fuck boring shit that people want to talk about. Big, big whoop. whoop. Like, like literally. <laughs> she it, was fully clothed. It's, it's insane. But also like this song is like coy and sweet and like shot and it it, there's that it's this is no you know dirty you know this is no like oh, my no. neck my back this is like it's, you know what i mean like <laughs> it's very cheeky but it, it doesn't i mean even if it did cross the line it wouldn't like she could do whatever she wants but it didn't it didn't cross like a super erotic line like it was more of a wink uh, than and I also think, like, as a record that gets pegged as, like, oh, boy, here goes Nelly crossing over and selling out. There's a lot of funny, quirky lines in it, too. Like, the game MVP, like Steve Nash. Steve Nash, yes. <laughs> you know what's funny? I actually, I sung this song at karaoke, <laughs> like, a, like, a month ago. Yeah. And the Steve Nash part was the part that literally everyone in the karaoke room was, like, belting. Yeah, because that's, like, a memorable, <laughs> funny, weird line in a pop song yeah now that you mention it this mm-hmm. is I, I didn't know whether i was gonna tell the story but i'm going to tell it so at one point i was applying to transfer colleges when this record came out uh from one school to, to um the clive davis music program at nyu i did not mm-hmm. get in pre let me just spoil that and they asked you no that's fine i didn't get into nyu's gallatin school either so <laughs> love, that. Really... <laughs> love that love that i feel i feel supported and seen so one of the things that clive <laughs> davis like required was um you know i at the time, I thought I was going to like be in the music business program. But even if you didn't apply as like an artist, you had to like submit some sort of performance video. And th- what I decided to submit was me and my best friend in college doing like a full on lip sync choreographed routine to Promiscuous Girl. I love this and that does exist somewhere <laughs> on a file it will never be seen in public but i was gonna say it will never be seen are you gonna like upload it for like a throwback moment I, mean, it, no. I would only do it if it like helped the podcast but otherwise it's like mm-hmm. too shameful for me to ever show in public but anyway yeah it's got the holler back girl kind of stomping beat but it does have these big sort of like stabbing 80s synthesizers on the chorus and those overt nods at 80s aesthetics kind of paired with modern hip-hop and dance sounds, I feel like is an important through line on Loose in general. Like, there's aspects of Promiscuous Girl that definitely give me kind of early jam Lewis Janet songs, like The Pleasure Principle, in terms of the way the percussion is programmed. There's a certain control mm. aspect to some of the sound of the production. Too. I don't know what was in the water back then that everyone wanted to like channel the 80s. Well, the it was a very fun period of pop dance music. And I think like this record was part of a pivotal moment that I think we've talked on this podcast about before. But just to summarize, kind of beginning with Loose through Future Sex Love Sounds, through Blackout, through The Way I Are, Don't Stop the Music, where music was transitioning Mm -hmm. slowly out of hip-hop aesthetics and into dance aesthetics. Promiscuous Girl is in conversation with, like, the hip-hop and B of the early 2000s, which is, like, personified by maybe the the I'm Real remix or something like that. Doubly so, given the call-and-response nature of that song. What's my motherfucking name? Are you So, like, in a sense, mm, Promiscuous yeah. Girl has one foot in the I'm Real remix and one foot in, like, dance music. And so it's, like, almost like, a, like a bridge yeah. song. Anyway, so Promiscuous Girl goes on to be a 
absolute smash number one song completely i think rejiggers who nelly Furtado is in people's minds and maybe it's like oh yeah like i remember it was on like every reality tv show on mtv <laughs> like the hills and like i think like american next top model yeah like, you could not escape promiscuous if, even if you try. I mean, she all of a sudden turns into this, like, she's a main pop girly all of a sudden. Like, yeah. I think there was probably a lot of people that maybe, like, had zero idea that she was even the same person that, like, made I'm Like a Bird or maybe had never even heard I'm Like a mm-hmm. Bird, right? I feel like people definitely took a double take. It's very (laughs) rare, I feel like, for someone on their third album. And, like, I think she probably, you know, I don't know. I don't know how old she was at this point. But it's not common to, like, have a breakthrough at that point in your career. I'm trying to think of, like, Mm -hmm. other artists. Like, the one that comes to mind is, like, and it always seems like a huge outlier to me in terms of, like, making this journey successfully was Sia as somebody that Mm. had this kind of, like, indie career. And then, like, at age 40. went full fed. Decided to become a pop star. But it's not very easy to do that. I mean, if you look at even Charlie XX, who I keep bringing up here, is like somebody that I think would like to, if she could, find a way to have number one songs in a way that like felt that was still integrity to her. But like, I think she'd like yeah. that. It's not so easy to just like to have the world think of you in this one way, maybe as like a cool influencer. Yeah. Especially because when it comes to female pop singers, there's always this time limit. You're going to like wash up when you're 30 and it's like, oh, you got to do all this stuff before yeah. then. Or else there'll be a woman to replace you. And I feel like, you know, just going back to the misogynistic music industry, there's always a cap of when women could be successful. And I feel like, yeah, Asiya, uh, Nelly, even like a Robin, they mm. all kind of, they broke through that for sure. Yeah, but it's so hard to do. And it's like, it's really a testament to whatever they, Timberland and Nelly landed on, on Promiscuous and on the rest mm-hmm. of Loose. That, like, was a magical Magic. formula. So what about the rest of Loose? Like, what are some of the other highlights? And, like, how would you describe the aesthetics of this record? Say It Right mm. is incredible. The other number one song from this album. There's such a haunting quality to it that I feel like I haven't heard since the song came out. And it was so different from what was happening, not only in pop music at the time, but what was happening on the rest of Loose. You know, I feel like it's such a standout record that it's so masterful and it pushed the boundaries for both Nelly and Timbaland because those were sounds that we haven't heard from them before. And I thought it was such a beautiful outcome to the way that they worked in the studio and say it right. It's just- I agree. It tugs at, tugs at my heart. Me too. It, I it, love that It's song. my personal favorite on the record also. And I agree. It's like one of the most fluid marriages, I feel like, between Timberland and Nelly's aesthetics. Because you've got this mm. kind of slamming up-tempo dance record in a sense. But it still kind of has that Timberland brum, bangra signature drum programming. And it has, as you said, kind of a haunting, melancholy, sad singer-songwriter quality to it that, like, mm. puts it in conversation, I think, with Nelly's previous work. Like, it's both, like, a very down-the-middle, catchy, mainstream pop song with, like, an extremely great, catchy mm. hook. But also, there's an ambivalence to it, and there's layers to, like, what she's singing about in terms of, like, she's saying something defiant on the chorus, or she's saying something that's, like, that sounds like she's trying to talk herself through something kind of deep and dark. No, 
it's like a real cry on the dance floor kind of record. For sure. It has a very cold quality. Yeah, and then there's kind of like the other big kind of 80s references here. The big first single in Europe is Maneater, which is like a direct Holland Oates reference in the song title, mm-hmm. but almost like sonically cuts the difference between almost like sweet dreams are made of these by the Eurythmics and like Prince-esque drum programming. Yeah, it's this kind of wicked production to it but it it, i like that because it does have those 80s inspired synths but it's fused with this heavy hip-hop drum beat and i think it's just such a stomper yes like it and weird i mean it's it's dissonant and strange sounding like for all the criticism she got for sort of like selling out going mainstream or whatever like that's a very strange sounding pop song Oh, for sure. That's why I'm like, when people are saying this was a quote-unquote sellout record, like, it's still a weird Mm -hmm. record. It just happened to come out at a time where other people were making weird records. Yes. Love Angel Music Baby is a weird record. Exactly. Like, even, like, The Duchess, like, Fergie's solo Mm. album, like, it it was a strange time. You know, other things that sort of came to mind to me listening to this was, um... I actually, you know, given the Aaliyah Timberland connection, there's a record called Showtime on here that actually, like, where she Love. sort of sounds yeah. like almost strangely like Aaliyah on certain moments. It's super R&B. Like, I feel like that's a song where you mentioned Aaliyah, but I also feel like Carrie Hilson could have made that song. Mm. Like, of course, Carrie Hilson, for people listening, like, she she was, you know, Timbaland's protege, you know? So it has, like, a very, like, twinkling, very sensual, like, beneath the sheets type of vibe. And I thought that was out of the box for Nelly because she doesn't often go down that route. So I thought that was a very, very fun moment for her. And and it goes with the whole theme of the album of her feeling more confident sexually. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. You know, I I also could not escape, you know, we've gone through this huge cultural reassessment with Britney and Blackout Mm -hmm. is such a huge part of that. And we can't escape talking about Lucy, let's talk about Danger, who is Timberland's protege who co-produced all of these songs with him. There's some ways to me that Loose feels very much like the Blackout before Blackout. Mm. I mean, Promiscuous and Maneater share quite a bit in common with like Break the Ice and Give Me More. Every time that is so brilliant. I would have never put those together, but that makes so much sense, especially with, you know, Danger branching off and doing this like super electronic and like off the wall type of approach for Britney in the way that they did for yeah. Nelly. Yeah, that makes yeah. so much sense. And like do it to me also like and hot as ice from Blackout share quite a bit in common You know, glow and freak show, say it right and perfect lover. I mean, like, there's a lot of mm. DNA shared between these two records. So, how would you say public perception of Nelly post Luce's success? And I guess I'll insert here Luce has two number one singles in the United States. 
sells a ton of records, debuts at number one, really establishes Nelly as a mainstream pop star, which obviously was the intention of it and was successful. How does she fit in post-Lucid Success? Like, how is she viewed in the context of other mainstream pop stars of that moment? Yeah, I feel like she, at that time, she was on that same level. She really, like, catapulted into a completely different platform that maybe she wasn't expecting. I don't think any of us were, were expecting her to be, you know, this big. So she really established herself as the pop star du jour and, like, someone to really, really look out for. And all that success, like, that rapid success and all these hits, it probably put a lot of pressure on her to either follow that up or try to figure out okay what the hell am I going to do next like these people are expecting a loose part too like can I can I even do that yeah you know it was interesting because I think she wasn't as outra in presentation as Gwen Stefani was she wasn't as silly clownish as Fergie was and yet they all feel part of a movement like they were all kind of like treading this line I think between like the transition pop was in between hip-hop and dance music and they were all kind of working within that space on a certain level and I think it's really notable that the Duchess Gwen Stefani's two records which came out in quick succession in 04 and 06 and Loose represented like an entire generation of female pop stars who a were coming off of careers that were like adjacent to pop, but like where they had to transition to make these particular solo records. Like, you know, Fergie was Black Eyed Peas into her solo record. Nelly was coming from this indie artist into her kind of mainstream vibe. You know, Gwen, Gwen, no doubt. And they all had these huge albums with like a lot of success. And then they all also sort of like abandoned solo pop stardom after having such huge Mm -hmm. success. What do you make of that? I mean, I think that's a very strange little micro movement of this mid-2000s period. It's kind of hard to say because I don't know if they either felt the pressure to follow up with that mainstream success or it was just an experiment. They're like, okay, I did that. It's under my belt. Let me do something else. You Mm. know, like I proved to myself that I could be this, you know, mainstream pop star, but I also kind of want to go back to what I was doing prior to be a little bit more Indian under the radar. So it's a little bit hard to tell what their reasonings were for it, but I have to believe it's, it's one, of, one of those two things. Yeah, that's really interesting because they also all almost treat their pop careers as like a little bit of like a fun dalliance. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like it's a just side like a project. Hobby, yeah. you know? <laughs> like yeah. becoming a mainstream pop like, megastar. I just, I just did this thing. Right, as like a hobby is a hilarious you know? thought. <laughs> Like, I just sold a million records. No big deal. Right, exactly. But it's just fascinating. (laughs) I think they were all also sort of, like, slightly older. They were later in their career. Mm -hmm. Like, most people, when they have their first solo success, are maybe teenagers, early 20s. Like, you know, I think Gwen was probably 30-plus years old at the point that Love Angel Music Baby came out or around there. Mm -hmm. I think Fergie also was probably, like, in her late 20s or early 30s. I think Nelly, too. So it was an interesting thing where they all had these kind of, like, breakthrough kind of quirky dance pop and hip-hop adjacent records and then they like an entire generation of female pop stars just kind of like hung it up a little bit Mm -hmm. like we didn't get another Fergie record until what 2017 we didn't get 
Exactly. We didn't get another Gwen solo <laughs> record maybe until 2015. And Nelly, Nelly recedes very quickly. She has this huge moment yeah. and then basically like disappears from making music aside from making this Spanish language album, which is not something that if you're doing that, that isn't aimed at making a follow-up to Loose. You know what I mean? But no, she does no. return in 2012 with this record, The Spirit Indestructible, which is largely a collaboration with Dark Child. Mm-hmm. Who I love. Yes, who Another I, icon. Too. She's just racking up iconic yeah. producers at this point. <laughs> and I had never listened to it all the way through, but I actually liked it. I, I was like, oh, she definitely tried, I think, in some ways to recreate the formula of loose in that these, I think, these songs sit more on the spectrum towards excessive, like less sort of like sort of self-consciously quirky singer-songwriter music and sound more beat-driven. <laughs> Talk to me about what your experience of the Spirit Indestructible is aesthetically. Yeah, so, you know, when people talk about her selling out for Loose, I think she sold out on the Spirit Indestructible. Ooh, hot take. Because it's just so generic Mm. and obvious to what was going on at the time of music. Mind you, 2012, that was a post-Lady Gaga era where everyone was doing electro pop. That was, like, the thing that, you know, and Usher, Chris Brown, and Rihanna, like, people just wanted to have four on the four bleeds all the time. And I felt like... Nelly fell into that trap of trying to keep up with the Joneses with what was happening in Electropop. And I feel like that album, it wasn't her. Like, it, it didn't fit with the identity that I saw on One Nelly or Loose. I understand what you're saying about that. I mean, it, I thought it was enjoyable as a pop record. I'm totally with you in that, like, it's very obvious listening to this record that Rihanna has happened and is the biggest pop star on earth. Exactly. Like, I kept listening to this and being like, there's a lot of wanting to be Rihanna songs on this album. The commercial prospects of this record lend themselves to you being in the majority here because this album is a humongous flop. I mean, coming off of (laughs) such a monumental record like Loose. I mean, and it makes sense because I think even if she had made the best record of all time that was like conversant with pop and still incredible and whatever, she pulled off everything that she would have needed to. Waiting six years to release the follow-up. I mean, music had changed, Mm -hmm. as you were getting it earlier, music had changed so much. Everything that she represented and was sort of like instrumental in shifting with Loose and all of the things that we were just talking about with that record had happened. There was an entire new generation of pop queens. Exactly. This record was a monumental failure on a, in a commercial sense. Yeah, it was not cute for her. No, it was it was not cute for her. I don't think her like public image really, or at least like her commercial pop prospects, have really ever recovered since then. She has this album in 2016, following that up called "The Ride," mm-hmm. which is produced by John Congleton, primarily known as the producer of a bunch of St. Vincent albums that are incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is clearly a pivot back towards maybe like more of like the overtly eccentric sounds of her early songs. I 
felt like she was trying to tap into that singer-songwriting folky type of vibe that she she first introduced us to and I felt like she did it very successfully you know despite the album maybe going under the radar in the mainstream sense I feel like people who were day one fans of Nelly they appreciated this mm. album it's it was. interesting I actually listened to it for the first time since it came out in 2016 this morning mm-hmm. it's got big interesting production choices I definitely hear the St. Vincent vibe on like there's certain songs that oh, are like sure. okay this is Digital Witness like whatever <laughs> I like this album. Like, I appreciate what she was doing on it, but, like, it's a little fussy to me, like, the production of it. Like, I I feel like she's never quite found her center again in her post-loose work. She operates in this interesting middle zone between mainstream pop star and kind of quirkier indie singer-songwriter, and I think she's had a bit of trouble figuring out how to thread that needle post Loose's mm. success. Like, I still feel like in different ways, the Spirit Indestructible being like more on like the going fully towards like mainstream pop side of, of her oeuvre yeah. and then the ride kind of like pivoting back. They both feel a little bit contrived to me in different ways. And yeah. I just wonder like what I would want Nelly Furtado to do moving forward. Like, I think we can agree that like her days as like a chart topping pop star Oh yeah, those those are that chapter is closed. That chapter is closed. (laughs) But I still feel like she's a fascinating artist. She was part of at least two incredibly fascinating moments in two thousands pop history, like the singer songwriter pop crossover, and then the sort of like Timberland eighties dance pop revival of the mid 2000s you know she remains a singular voice she's fascinating because she toggles these two worlds i'm just trying to think like what would be an interesting direction for nelly furtado to go in do you think like in this phase of her yeah. career maybe go a little bit on the alt r&b type right. of vibe because dev hines uh, is what song... i was thinking about yeah that would be incredible because i'm just thinking on the ride there's a song called pipe dreams and when i listen to it I immediately think of Solange. Like, that's Ooh, like that type of vibe. Interesting. That'd be a cool experiment for her to fuse that folky indie vibe with alt R&B and even going back to that trip hop that she first uh, dabbled in when she was a teenager. I would be interested in listening to something like that. For There's sure. a Lucy of her and Dev Hines. They made something together. There's a song around the mid 2010s. Have you heard that? I was going to say, did I miss this moment? Yeah, it was like only I released on did, a cassette in Canada or something like that. I didn't even know about it until I was getting ready to do this with you. And I was like, oh, crazy. Because yeah. I do feel like that would be an interesting collaborator for her. Uh, especially talking I... about Solange, you know. Yeah. Well, Nelly, if you're listening to this podcast. Go back to Dev. This is our this is our request. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's talk Pantheon. So, all right, I have my I have my thought. Do you have a thought? Okay, I, if you do, I'd love if you would share yours first. All right, so 
I want to say tier 4A flash in the pan (laughs) (laughs) because I feel like she loose was that record right. like like i just said before like that's the album when you think of nez Vitar, or you think of loose but i think well nelly was more respected and like the music nerds and like the critically acclaimed like it was like that type of yeah. vibe but loose was such a mainstream pop culture moment and she hasn't topped that since so i feel like it was just yeah just a flash in the pan <laughs> moment of her of in terms of mainstream success yeah so that, that's where i would um i gotta yeah. agree with you and just for the audience's edification, the requirements in this are speak oh, yeah. to Nelly, speak <laughs> to Nelly Furtado's career. One to two big albums with three to five big hit singles that are recognizable to many people who are not in the artist core fan base. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We got one big album. We got, I'd say yep. exactly maybe three to four big singles from that record. Their name is recognizable to people who are of prime age during their moment. I feel like that's yeah, Nelly Furtado. Like you you, exactly. Yeah. If you were... If you were between, you know, 16 and 24 when Loose came out, I bet you Nelly Furtado's name yeah. means something to you. And if you were not, I bet you it does not mean much to you. Um, it's obvious that they have one or two signature songs. Yes. I'd say I'm like a bird and promiscuous are the, for right? Sure. If you had to say like those are yeah, her signature songs. Easily mistaken for other artists. I feel like I could see myself with someone hearing promiscuous and thinking, oh, that's Fergie. Or like, oh, that's like. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I love that. I love that Fergie (laughs) song. (laughs) Music is possibly more recognizable than they are. I agree. I think people, people hear promiscuous, they know that, but they might not be able to pick Nelly Furtado out of a lineup. Exactly. Um, They're usually not taken particularly seriously by mainstream audiences aside from being points of nostalgia. I feel like that's true because she is such a nostalgia piece i think at this point for like most people oh for yeah. sure that's the reason why she's usually brought up a conversation for that yeah, nostalgia right promiscuous is such a space and time like it really just like transports you back to 2006 like oh, the yeah. minute it starts playing. it brings me back to like prom like prom. <laughs> like that type of vibe yeah. we didn't talk about the incredible <laughs> iconic intro oh am i, am throwing, I throwing you off? off am i throwing yeah. you off nope. yeah didn't think so <laughs> am i throwing you off nope didn't think so. <laughs> um, all right. So I think we're in concert here that Nelly Furtado is okay. a tier for. I'm glad that we're, we're on the, the same yeah. level because I was like, I don't know. Are we going to be in agreement yeah, or not? But yeah. I, I kind of <laughs> feel like there's no escaping it. And like, it's by her own design on some level. I mean, who knows what could have been if Nelly released Loose Part 2 in 2008, things could have been pretty different. Who knows? Yeah, she chose this path. It wasn't like she, I mean, granted, she tried to, you know, follow up with Spirit Indestructible, but ultimately she chose to be under the yeah. radar and just had that one big moment. So it was by her own doing. My favorite thing of all of the brilliant things you've said today is this notion of like pop stardom as like a fun side project. I love, I love that. I think that's so true. And it speaks to like, Nelly ended up, I think more or less like exactly where she needed to be because she didn't, maybe didn't want loose part two in her life. Not everyone's equipped to be or wants to be like, in the pressure cooker that is being a number one chart-topping pop star. She strikes me as a type of person. Yeah, it's a lot of work. Yeah, and she also probably wants to have more idiosyncratic, be able to make more strange idiosyncratic choices in her work and not have to deal with the pressures of following up an album. like. I was reading another interview. She said that, you know, after Loose, because she didn't want to go on tour anymore. She wanted to, you know, raise her daughter. And she was was like working at her daughter's school library, (laughs) working at her friend's final shop. So she was doing everyday things because she wanted to stay away from that. 
mega pop right. moment. Yeah. So. Okay, great. So last question I always ask everybody, what is an underrated Nelly Furtado song? Maybe something we haven't spoken about yet that we can send the podcast out on. I'm going to go with Afraid on, on Loose. Love Afraid. All right, so let's go out on Afraid. Mm-hmm. Bianca Gracie, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. So afraid of people might say, but that's not okay. Because you're on a human. So afraid of people might say, but that's not okay. Your song is strong enough. So afraid of people might say, but that's not okay. Because you're on a human. So afraid of people might say, you're going to break some leaves. Don't do it. All right, y'all. That is Pop Pantheon. Nelly Furtado. The judgment is rendered. She has a tier for a flash in the pan. But, you know, a very hot flash in the pan. <laughs> it brought us a lot of joy and a lot of great music. Hope this made you want to go check out some of Nelly's pre-Loose work. Go back to Loose. Maybe check out The Ride. It was pretty good, I gotta say. I liked both those later records. They were worth listening to. Thank you so much to Bianca Gracie for being on the podcast and doing this with me. Follow Pop Pantheon on Instagram at Pop Pantheon Pod. Follow me, DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Instagram and Twitter. Send all your questions to poppantheonpod at gmail.com. Join the Discord tonight. Thursday, February 3rd at 8 p.m., 5 p.m. Pacific. And until next time, have a wonderful life. Adios. Got yours, let me find what mine's is. I'm a survivor, look how strong my mind is. I stand on my own, it's all me. Regardless of whatever they call me. I'm a leader, not a follower. And I'd rather be paid and popular. Grind, homie, get your dollars up. We in the belly of the beast that already swallowed us. Yeah.